0: Sixth. Of Lake Erie. Fully 10% of the American crews were blacks. Perry spoke highly of their bravery and good conduct. He said they seemed to be absolutely insensible to danger. His fighters were a motley collection of blacks, soldiers, and boys. Nearly all had been afflicted with sickness. McKenzie says that when the defeated British commander was brought aboard the Niagara and beheld the sickly and party colored beings around him, an expression of chagrin escaped him at having been conquered by such men. The following extract is from a letter written by Commodore Nathaniel Shaler of the Armed Schooner, Governor Tompkins. Dated January 1, 1813. Speaking of a fight with a British frigate, he said, The name of one of my poor fellows who was killed ought to be registered in the Book of Fame and remembered with reverence as long as bravery is considered a virtue. He was a black man by the name of John Johnson. A 24-pound shot struck him in the hip and tore away all the lower part of his body. In the state the poor brave fellow lay on the deck and several times exclaimed to his shipmates, Fire away! Boys, don't haul the colors down! Another black man by the name of John Davis was struck in much the same way. He fell near me and several times requested to be thrown overboard, saying he was only in the way of the others. When America has such chars, she has little to fear from the tyrants of the ocean. With the history fresh in mind of the successful Negro insurrection in St. Domingo, Bringing out so conspicuous a military and administrative genius as to Saint Louverture, it is not surprising that the services of Negroes as soldiers were not only welcomed but solicited by various states during the War of 1812, excepting the Battle of New Orleans. Almost all the martial glory of the struggle was on the water. New York, however, passed a special act of the legislature and organized two regiments of Negro troops. While there was heavy recruiting in other states. When in 1814 New Orleans was in danger, the free colored people of Louisiana were called into the field with the whites. General Andrew Jackson's commendatory address read to his colored troops December 18, 1814, is one of the highest compliments ever paid by a commander to his troops. He said, Soldiers, when On the banks of the Mobile, I called you to take up arms, inviting you to partake of the perils and glory of your white fellow citizens. I expected much from you." for I was not ignorant that you possessed qualities most formidable to an invading enemy, I knew with what fortitude you could endure hunger and thirst, and all the fatigues of a campaign, I knew well how you loved your native country, and that you, as well as ourselves had to defend what man holds most dear his parents, wife, children and property, you have done more than I expected, in addition to the previous qualities I before knew you to possess, I found among you a noble enthusiasm which leads to the performance of great things. Soldiers, the President of the United States shall hear how praiseworthy was your conduct in the hour of danger, and the representatives of the American people will give you the praise your exploits entitle you to. Your General anticipates them in applauding your noble order. Many incidents are on record of the gallantry of Negro soldiers and servants also serving as soldiers. In the war with Mexico, Colonel Clay, a son of Henry Clay, was accompanied into the thick of the Battle of Buena Vista by his Negro servant. He remained by his side in the fatal charge and saw clay stricken from his horse. Although surrounded by the murderous Mexicans he succeeded in carrying the mangled body of his master from the field. It has been stated and the evidence seems strong that a Negro saved the life of General Zachary Taylor at the Battle of Monterrey. The story is that a Mexican was aiming a deadly blow at the general when the Negro sprang between them slew the mexican and received a deep wound from a lance the negro was a slave at the time but was afterwards emancipated by president taylor upwards of 200.000 colored soldiers were regularly enlisted in the federal army and navy during the civil war president lincoln commissioned eight negro surgeons for field and hospital duty losses sustained by the negro troops amounting to upwards of 37.000 men are shown to have been as heavy in proportion to the numbers engaged as those of the white forces. The record of the Negro troops in the Civil War is one of uniform excellence. Numerous official documents attest this fact. Aside from the spoken and written commendations of many high officers, their bravery was everywhere recognized, many distinguished themselves and several attained to the rank of regularly commissioned officers. Conspicuous in Negro annals of that time is the case of Charles E. Nash. Afterwards a member of Congress, He received a primary education in the schools of New Orleans, but had educated himself largely by his own efforts. In 1863 he enlisted in the 83rd Regiment. United States Chassaros de and became acting sergeant major of that command. At the storming of Fort Blakely he lost a leg and was honorably discharged. Another, William Hannibal Thomas, afterwards became prominent as an author, teacher, lawyer and legislator. His best-known book was entitled, The American Negro, what he was, what the island and what he may become. He served as a soldier during the Civil War and lost an arm in the service. The exploit of Robert Smalls was so brilliant that no amount of unfairness or prejudice has been able to shadow it. It is well known to all students of the War of the Rebellion and is recorded in the imperishable pages of history. Smalls was born a slave at Beaufort, South Carolina, but managed to secure some education, having led a seafaring life to some extent. The early part of the war found him employed as pilot of the rebel transport planter. He was thoroughly familiar with the harbors and inlets of the South Atlantic coast. On May 31, 1862, the planter was in Charleston Harbor. All the white officers and crew went ashore, leaving on board a colored crew of eight men in charge of smalls. He summoned aboard his wife and three children and at two o'clock in the morning steamed out of the harbor, passade the Confederate forts by giving the proper signals and when fairly out of reach, ran up the Stars and Stripes and headed a course for the Union fleet, into whose hands he soon surrendered the ship. He was appointed a pilot in the United States Navy and served as such on the Monitor Keokuk in the attack on Fort Sumter, was promoted to captain for gallant and meritorious conduct, December 1, 1863, and placed in command of the planter, a position which he held until the vessel was taken out of commission in 1866. He was a member of the South Carolina Constitutional Convention, 1868, elected same year to the legislature, to the State Senate 1870 and 1872, and was a member of the 44th and 45th Congresses. Among the most inspiring pages of Civil War history written by the Negro, were the campaigns of Port Hudson, Louisiana, Fort Wagner, South Carolina and Fort Pillow, Kentucky. Negro troops participated in the siege of the former place by the Federal Forces under General Banks, which began in May 1863, and ended in the surrender of the Fort July 8, 1863. Fort Wagner was one of the defenses of Charleston, it was reduced by General Gilmore, September 6.1863 and Negro troops contributed in a glorious and heroic manner to the result. Fort Pillow had been taken by the Federals and was garrisoned by a Negro regiment and a detachment of cavalry, it was recaptured April 12, 1864 by the Confederates under General Forrest, practically the entire garrison was massacred, an act that will stain forever the name of Forrest, and the cause for which he struggled, by the close of the Civil War. The value and fitness of the Negro as a soldier had been so completely demonstrated that the government decided to enlarge the regular army and form 50% of the increase from colored men. In 1866 eight new infantry regiments were authorized of which four were to be Negroes and four new cavalry regiments of which two were to be Negroes. The Negro infantry regiments were numbered the 38th, 39th, 40th and 41st. The cavalry regiments were known as the 9th and 10th. In 1869 there was a general reduction in the infantry forces of the regular army and the 38th and 41st were consolidated into a one regiment numbered the 24th and the 39th and 40th into a one regiment numbered the 25th. The strength and numerical titles of the cavalry were not changed. For over 40 years the colored American was represented in our regular army by those four regiments. They had borne more than their proportionate share of hard service, including many Indian campaigns. The men have conducted themselves so worthily as to call forth the best praise of the highest military authorities. General Miles and General Merritt, actively identified with the Indian wars, were instincting in their commendation of the valor and skill of Negro fighters. Between 1869 and 1889, three colored men were regularly graduated and commissioned from the United States Military Academy at West Point and served in the regular army as officers. They were John H. Alexander. Charles Young and H.O. Flipper. The latter was dismissed. All served in the cavalry. Alexander died shortly before the Spanish-American War and up to the time of his demise. Enjoyed the confidence and esteem of his associates. White and black. Young became major in the volunteer service during the Spanish-American War and was placed in command of the 9th Battalion of Ohio Volunteers. After the Spanish-American War he returned to the regular army with a reduced rank. But ultimately became a major in that service upon america's entry into the european war he was elevated to the rank of colonel at the breaking out of the spanish-american war in 1898 negro military organizations existed principally in the regular army these were soon filled to their maximum strength and the desire of negroes north and south to enlist seemed likely to meet with disappointment congress to meet the insistence of colored men for service authorized the raising of ten Negro volunteer regiments of emus, men who had lived in sections where the yellow fever and other malignant or malarial visitations had occurred, and who had suffered from them or shown evidences that they in all probability would be immune from the diseases. The plan to place white men in all commands above the grade of second lieutenant, prevented Negroes from enlisting as they otherwise would have done. Four emu regiments were organized the 7th, 8th, 9th and 10th. Several of the states appreciating the value of the Negro as a soldier and in response to his intense desire to enlist, placed volunteer Negro organizations at the disposal of the government. There were the 3rd Alabama and 6th Virginia Infantry, 8th Illinois Infantry, Companies and B Indiana Infantry, 33rd Kansas Infantry, and a battalion of the 9th Ohio Infantry. The 8th Illinois was officered by colored men throughout. J.R. Marshall, its first colonel, commanded the regiment during the Spanish-American War and did garrison duty in Santiago Province for some time after the war, being for a while military governor of San Luis. Governor Russell of North Carolina called out a Negro regiment, the 3rd Infantry, officered by colored men throughout. Colonel Charles Young commanding. It was not mustered into the service. Company L. 6th Massachusetts Infantry was a Negro company serving in a white regiment. John L. Waller deceased a negro formerly united states consul to madagascar was a captain in the kansas regiment about 100 negro second lieutenants were commissioned in the volunteer force during the spanish-american war there was a negro paymaster major john r lynch of mississippi and two negro chaplains the Rev. ct walker of georgia and the Rev. richard carroll of south carolina Owing to the briefness of the campaign in cuba Most of the service of Negro troops devolved upon the regulars who were fit and ready. But all troops were at mobilization or training bases and willing and anxious to serve. No pages in the history of this country are more replete with the record of good fighting, military efficiency and soldierly conduct, than those recording the story of Negro troops in Cuba. Colonel Roosevelt said that the conduct of the 9th and 10th cavalry reflected honor upon the whole American people, especially on their own race. He could hardly say otherwise in view of the splendid support given by those two regiments that such island and will continue to be the verdict of history, saved him and his rough riders from annihilation at San Juan Hill, Cuba, in her struggles for freedom, had among her own people two splendid Negro leaders, Antonio and Jose Maceo. Following the Cuban campaign, Negro troops saw distinguished service in the Philippine Islands' uprisings. They have from time to time since garrisoned and preserved order in those possessions. A very limited number of Negro officers have been attached to their racial contingents in the Philippines, and there will be found but a few of competent military authority in this country, who will deny that educated, intelligent and qualified Negroes, are fitted for positions of leadership and command. The Negro of this country is primarily and essentially concerned with the destiny and problems of his race, his work encouraged as it must be by the laws and spirit of the age, will determine his future and mark the commencement of the elimination of the shameful prejudice against him in the land, for which, from Lexington to the bloody trenches of France, he has given of his blood to preserve, before leaving the subject of the Negro in previous wars. It is highly fitting to review the heroic incident of June 21, 1916, at Carrizal, Mexico, here is a tale of daring that to duplicate would tax the imagination of war fiction writers, and among incidents of fact will range along with the Texans' defense of the Alamo, where men fought and perished against great odds. The occasion was the celebrated expedition conducted by General J.J. J. Pershing into Mexico in pursuit of the bandit leader Villa, a pick detachment consisting of portions of Troops C and K of the Colored Tenth Cavalry, was dispatched from Pershing's main force towards the town of Villa the force was commanded by Captain Charles T. Boyd of Troop C and Captain Louis Morey of Troop K. Lieutenant Adair was second in command in Troop C to Captain Boyd, including officers and civilian scouts. The force numbered about 80 men. Early on the morning of June 21st, the detachment wishing to pass through the garrison town of Carrizal sought the permission of the Mexican commander amidst a show of force. The officers were invited into the town by the commander, ostensibly for a parley. Fearing a trap they refused the invitation and invited the Mexicans to a parley outside the town. The Mexican commander came out with his entire force and began to dispose them in positions which were very threatening to the Americans. Captain Boyd informed the Mexican that his orders were to proceed eastward to Otumada and protested against the menacing position of the Mexican forces. The Mexican replied that his orders were to prevent the Americans from proceeding in any direction excepting northward, the direction from which they had just come. Captain Boyd refused to retreat, but ordered his men not to fire until they were attacked. The Mexican commander retired to the flank and almost immediately opened with machine gun fire from a concealed trench. This was quickly followed by rifle fire from the remainder of the force. The Mexicans outnumbered the troopers nearly 2 to one and their most effective force was entrenched. The Americans were on a flat plain, and protected by anything larger than bunches of cactus or sagebrush. They dismounted. Laid flat on the ground and responded to the attack as best they could. The horses were mostly stampeded by the early firing. The spray of lead from the machine gun had become so galling that Captain Boyd decided to charge the position. Not a man wavered in the charge. They took the gun. The captain falling dead across the barrel of it just as the last Mexican was killed or put to flight. Lieutenant Adair was also killed. The Mexicans returned in force and recaptured the position. Captain Mori had been concerned in warding off the flank attack. His men fought no less bravely than the others. They finally were driven to seek refuge in an adobe house. That is, all who were able to reach it. Here they kept the Mexicans at bay for hours firing through windows and holes in the walls. Captain Mori, seriously wounded, with a few of his survivors, finally escaped from the house and hid for nearly two days in a hole. The soldiers refused to leave their officer. When they finally were able to leave their place of concealment, the several that were left assisted their captain on the road towards the main force, arriving at a point where reinforcements could be summoned. The captain wrote a report to his commander and sent his men to headquarters with it. They arrived in record time and a party was sent out, reaching the wounded officer in time to save his life. About half of the American force was wiped out and most of the others were taken prisoners. They inflicted a much heavier loss on the Mexicans. Among the killed was the Mexican commander who had ordered the treacherous attack. It may be that, someone had blundered. This was not the concern of the black troopers, in the face of odds they fought by the cactus and lay dead under the Mexican stars. In closing this outline of the Negroes' participation in former wars, it is highly appropriate to quote the tributes of two eminent men. 1. General Benjamin F. Butler, a conspicuous military leader on the Union side in the Civil War, and Wendell Phillips considered by many the greatest orator America ever produced, and who devoted his life to the abolition movement looking to the freedom of the slave in the United States, said General Butler on the occasion of the debate in the National House of Representatives on the Civil Rights Bill, ten years after the bloody battle of New Market Heights, speaking to the bill, and referring to the gallantry of the black soldiers on that field of strife, it became my painful duty to follow in the track of that charging column, and there, in a space not wider than the clerk's desk and three hundred yards long, lay the dead bodies of five hundred forty-three of my colored comrades, fallen in defense of their country, who had offered their lives to uphold its flag and its honor, as a willing sacrifice, and as I rode along among them, guiding my horse this way and that way, lest he should profane with his hoofs what seemed to me the sacred dead, and as I looked on their bronzed faces upturned in the shining Sunday as if in mute appeal against the wrongs of the country whose flag had only been to them a flag of stripes, on which no star of glory had ever shone for them feeling I had wronged them in the past and believing what was the future of my country to them among my dead comrades there I swore to myself a solemn oath. May my right hand forget its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I ever fail to defend the rights of those men who have given their blood for me and my country this day and for their race forever, and, God helping me, I will keep that oath. Mr. Phillips in his great oration on to St. Louverture, the black of St. Domingo, statesman, warrior and alibiator, delivered in New York City, March eleventh, 1863, said among other things, a constellation of linguistic brilliance not surpassed since the impassioned appeals of Cicero swept the Roman Senate to its feet or Demosthenes fired his listeners with the flame of his matchless eloquence, you remember that Macaulay says, comparing Cromwell with Napoleon, that Cromwell showed the greater military genius, if we consider that he never saw an army till he was 40, while Napoleon was educated from a boy in the best military schools in Europe, Cromwell manufactured his own army, Napoleon at the age of 27 was placed at the head of the best troops Europe ever saw, they were both successful, but, says Macaulay, with such disadvantages, the Englishman showed the greater genius. Whether you allow the inference or not, you will at least grant that it is a fair mode of measurement. Apply it to, to Saint. Cromwell never saw an army until he was forty, this man never saw a soldier till he was fifty. Cromwell manufactured his own army out of what? Englishmen the best blood in Europe, out of the middle class of Englishmen, the best blood of the island, and with it he conquered what? Englishmen their equals. This man manufactured his army out of what? Out of what you call the despicable race of negroes, debased, demoralized by 200 years of slavery. 100.000 of them imported into the island within 4 years, unable to speak a dialect intelligible even to each other. Yet out of this mixed and as you say, despicable mass, he forged a thunderbolt and hurled it at what? At the proudest blood in Europe, the Spaniard, and sent him home conquered that the most warlike blood in Europe, the French, and put them under his feet, that the pluckiest blood in Europe, the English, and they skulked home to Jamaica, the world is acquainted with the treacherous infamy inspired by the great Napoleon, that inveigled the black chieftain and liberator of his people on shipboard, the voyage to France, and his subsequent death starved, in the dungeon of the prison castle of St. Jude, Whittier, the poet evangelist, whose inspired verse contributed much to the crystallization of the sentiment and spirit that finally doomed African slavery in America, thus referred to the heartless tragedy and the splendid black who was its victim, sleek commie in thy dungeon tomb, beneath Byzantium's alien sky, dark hate y'an, for the time shall come, yea, even now is night when, everywhere, thy name shall be redeemed from color's infamy, and men shall learn to speak of thee, as one of earth's great spirits, born in servitude, and nursed in scorn, casting aside the weary weight and fetters of its low estate, in that strong majesty of soul, which knows no color, tongue or clime, which still hath spurned the base control of tyrants through all time, chapters I, Power of his nation's peril. Negroes' P A R D R I O D I C attitude selective draft in effect features and results bold reliance on faith in a people no color line drawn distribution of registrants by states Negro and white registrations compared Negro percentage higher claim fewer exemptions inductions by states better physically than whites tables, facts and figures. As stated in a previous chapter, the Negro's real opportunity to show his patriotic attitude did not come until the passage of the compulsory service law, selective draft was the name attached to it later and by which it was generally known. On May 18, 1917, the day the law was enacted by Congress, no advocate of preparedness could with confidence have forecasted the success of it. There were many who feared the total failure of it. The history of the United States disclosed a popular adherence to the principle of voluntary enlistment, if not a repudiation of the principle of selection or compulsory military service. It was to be expected that many people would look upon the law as highly experimental, as an act that, if it did not produce grave disorders in the country, would fall short of the results for which it was intended. It was fortunate for the country at this time, that the military establishment possessed in the person of General Crowder, one who had made a special study of selective drafts and other forms of compulsory service, not alone in this country, but throughout the nations of the world and back to the beginning of recorded history. He had become as familiar with all phases of it as though it had been a personal hobby and lifetime pursuit. The law was extremely plain and permitted of no guessing or legal quibbling over its terms. It boldly recited the military obligations of citizenship. It vested the president with the most complete power of prescribing regulations calculated to strike a balance between the industrial, agricultural and economic needs of the nation on the one hand and the military need on the other. Within 18 days between May 18th, when the law was approved, and June 5, the day the president had fixed as registration day, a great administrative machine was built, practically the entire male citizenship of the United States within the age limits fixed by law, 21 to 30 years inclusive, presented itself at the 4.000 enrollment booths with a registered result of nearly area code one zero 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 names. The project had been so systematized that within 48 hours almost complete registration returns had been assembled by telegraph in Washington. The order in which the 10 million registrants were to be called was accomplished on July 20th by a great central lottery in Washington. The boards proceeded promptly to call, to examine physically and to consider claims for exemption of over one and one-half million men, a sufficient number to fill the first national quota of 687.000. Thus in less than three and one-half months the nation had accepted and vigorously executed a compulsory service law. On June 5, 1918, 753.834 men were added to the rolls. On August 24, 1918, that number was increased by 159.161, finally on September 12, 1918, under the provision of the Act of August 31, 1918. Area Code 13228762 were added to the lists of those available for military service, which, including interim and other accessions, amounted to a grand total of Area Code 24234021, enrolled and subject to the terms of the Selective Service Law. This tremendous exhibition of manpower struck terror to the heart of the Hun and Hastened Hindu, if possible deliver a telling blow against the Allies before the wonderful strength and resources of the American nation could be brought to bear against him. Commenting on the facility with which the selective draft was put into effect, the report of the Provost Marshal General stated in part, the expedition and smoothness with which the law was executed emphasized the remarkable flexibility, adaptability and efficiency of our system of government and the devotion of our people. Here was a gigantic project in which success was staked not on reliance in the efficiency of a man, or in hierarchy of men, or, primarily, on a system. Here was a bold reliance on faith in a people. Most exacting duties were laid with perfect confidence on the officials of every locality in the nation, from the governors of states to the registrars of elections, and upon private citizens of every condition from men foremost in the industrial and political life of the nation to those who had never before been called upon to participate in the functions of government, by all administrative tokens, the accomplishment of their task was magic, no distinction regarding color or race was made in the selective draft law, except so far as non-citizen Indians were exempt from the draft, but the organization of the army placed negro soldiers in separate units, and the several calls for mobilization, were, therefore, Affected by this circumstance, in that no calls could be issued for Negro registrants until the organizations were ready for them. Figures of total registration given previously in this chapter include interim accessions and some that automatically went on the rolls after September 12, 1918. Inasmuch as the tables prepared by the Provost Marshal General's Department deal only with those placed on the rolls on regular registration days and do not include the accessions mentioned comparisons which follow will be based on those tables they show the total registration as area code 23779997 of which area code 21489470 were white and 2290.527 were black following is a table showing the distribution of colored and white registrants by states colored total registrants colored june 5th 1917 colored total and white colored registrants colored registrants to september 11th September 12th. Registrants, 1918-1918. United States Area Code 23 97 1.212.196 2.290.527 Alabama 444.69 to 81.410 163.373 Arizona 93.078 Area Code 295 six eight zero nine seven five Arkansas three hundred five point seven five four 40, fifty one point one seven six fifty three point six five nine one hundred four point eight three five California seven hundred eighty seven point six seven six three point three zero eight six point four zero four nine point seven one two Colorado two hundred fifteen point one seven eight one point one zero three one point eight six seven two point nine seven zero Connecticut three hundred seventy three point six seven six three point five two four 4.6598.183 Delaware 55.2153.7984.4488.246 4.448 8.246 District of Columbia 89.808 11.045 15.433 26.478 Florida 208.93139.01 82.03 to Georgia 549.020 112.593 108.183 220.781 Idaho 103.740 Area code 254-255-509 Illinois 1.571.717 21.816 35.597 57.413 Indiana 639.431 11.28 9, 5, 4, 9, 8, 3, 8, Iowa 5 Kansas 381.3155.5757.44814.023 3, 4, Kentucky 486.59925.85030.18256.032 Louisiana 391.65476.22382.256 158.479 Main 159.350 Area Code 163179342 Maryland three hundred thirteen point two five five twenty-six point four three five thirty-two point seven three six fifty-nine point one seven one Massachusetts 884.0306.0448.05614.100 Michigan 871.4106.9798.950 15.929 Minnesota 540.0031.5411.8093.350 Mississippi 344.506 81.548 91.534 08, Missouri 764.428 454.320 Montana 196.999320 494